Welcome to the Berkeley Journal of International Law's podcast, Travaux. I'm your host, Julia Wang, and this is The Current State. Welcome to a new season of Travaux, the Berkeley Journal of International Law's podcast. I'm Julia Wang, and I will be your host throughout this year. Today, I will be talking with Mara Ajalat about recent developments in content moderation legislation in the U.S. and around the world. Hey, Julia. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. So what makes this year such a consequential time for social media content moderation? Recently, several governments have challenged social media companies' role in content moderation, which includes screening of online posts to determine whether the content complies with platform-specific or internal policies and government or external policies. Some governments, as in France and Germany, think that social media companies are not doing enough to rein in um, hate speech misinformation, so they want more censorship, while others, such as in Florida, Michigan, and Texas, think that social media companies are going too far in restraining users' speech, i.e. they want less censorship. What is missing in these debates is investigators' critical use of social media content as evidence against human rights abuses and war crimes, which could be unfairly constrained if courts, companies, and legislatures cannot appropriately balance the right to free speech and the right to freedom from online harm with the need for open access to information. And what exactly has changed in government's approaches toward content moderation regulation? Well, to begin, some jurisdictions have certainly been more aggressive. Uh, For example, Platforms like YouTube, uh, Facebook, and Twitter may now be sued for moderating social media content in Texas. Just a few weeks ago, on September 16th, the Fifth Circuit held that um, a Texas bill, Texas House Bill 20, which prohibits large social media platforms from censoring content created, shared, or received by users in Texas based on, quote, viewpoint, unquote, was constitutional. And this bill is not the only one. Uh, Lawmakers in Michigan and Florida concerned about alleged censorship of conservative and right-wing media have also introduced similar legislative proposals. And what exactly happened in this suit regarding House Bill 20? So the plaintiffs, which uh, were trade organizations representing these social media companies, they argued that they had a First Amendment right to choose what to publish or not publish. This is not an unusual argument. Corporations' right to free speech or commercial speech is a long-standing principle of American constitutional law. Newspapers exercise editorial discretion, so why can't social media companies? The Fifth Circuit, however, rejected that argument. They said that these platforms are not like newspapers. They are more like common carriers, such as railroads and telephone companies. And as common carriers, they don't have the right to moderate content. It's important to note that content moderation doesn't just include blocking or banning content. The Texas bill also prohibits deplatforming, demonetizing, deboosting, restricting, denying equal access or visibility to, or otherwise discriminating against expression. So in effect, social media companies must now publish content that they would otherwise prevent from being created, shared, or received by users in Texas. Otherwise, they risk being sued for engaging in viewpoint discrimination. This seems like quite a broad piece of legislation. Are there any exceptions that would allow for platforms to moderate some aspects? 
Yeah, there are only four exceptions to the Texas law. The first being content that federal law authorizes its censorship. Also, content that an organization requests its removal to prevent the sexual exploitation of children and the ongoing harassment of sexual abuse survivors. Um, also, content that directly incites criminal activity or consists of specific threats of violence against people or groups of people based on certain classifications. And the final exception is um, content that is unlawful under the U.S., Texas Constitution, federal law, and Texas law. So what are the consequences of a decision like this? Quite a lot. (laughs) Uh, This decision poses countless problems for users and social media companies alike, from practical concerns involving which content Texas has jurisdiction over, to substantive concerns on the viewpoints that warrant protection. Does this decision protect content praising Nazism? Does it protect videos promoting terrorism by groups like the Islamic State? What about misinformation or hate speech? We can't say. There's also the worry that social media companies may end up applying the Texas law to all users to stop anyone from slipping through the cracks, especially if similar bills across the country continue to pop up. So the risks are enormous and uncertain. So you touched on this earlier, but aside from the platforms, who else has a stake in the recent push for content moderation reform? There's been a proliferation of tech solutions for human rights investigations that have enabled social media content to be used as evidence in the courtroom. So investigators and prosecutors have increasingly turned to platforms like Facebook and YouTube to circumvent the limitations of discovery. And this is especially true for international criminal investigators. They often have very limited access to witnesses on the ground, and they lack the coercive power necessary to compel state cooperation. And witnesses and survivors of human rights violations also have a stake in this. They too have increasingly turned to social media, posting photos and videos with the hope of reaching international investigative bodies or other pathways of achieving accountability. And why does this create problems for human rights investigators? The censoring of objectionable content, as important as it is for a harm-free social media, it complicates investigators' jobs. First, the content most at risk of censorship is also most likely to be of potential value to investigators and prosecutors. And once a platform takes down such content, investigators and lawyers have no recourse. They, they can appeal, but are often unsuccessful. Understandably, right? A person's right not to be exposed to harmful content outweighs instrumentalizing violence. This is the source of what um, Hillary Hubley aptly calls bad speech, good evidence dilemma. But this leads investigators to race against platforms, collecting and preserving that content before it is reported or detected by content moderation algorithms. Unsurprisingly, these algorithms often outpace investigators. So when criminal justice interests clash with fundamental rights, it becomes incredibly difficult to reconcile, for example, the importance of shielding youth from white supremacist propaganda with allowing investigators access to videos of Russian war crimes in Ukraine. So is there any way to reconcile this difference in pursuing justice for human rights victims, which would call for less moderation, and freedom from online harm, which favors more? Definitely. In 2021, 
Meta voluntarily shared millions of online content that could support allegations of war crimes and genocide with the independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar. This was a significant win for investigators. But is it enough? Neither Meta's human rights policy nor its most recent annual report say how it seeks to build on its experience working with Burmese human rights investigators. Still, Meta's actions have at least started similar conversations among other platforms, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube, over how to balance online safety and truth with open access to information. Do you think that these developments create a space where social media companies and human rights practitioners can work together? Certainly now more than ever, uh, these recent developments present a much-needed opportunity for lawmakers and platforms to invite human rights practitioners to the table. And we've already seen some interest. Um, Earlier this year, in May, four high-ranking Democratic Party members of the U.S. House of Representatives called on the chief executives of Meta, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube to preserve content and the metadata associated with it, potentially providing evidence of war crimes and human rights violations in Ukraine. So this concern for bad speech, good evidence, was new, as past hearings on bills restricting content moderation, such as in Florida, Michigan, and Texas, did not include testimony from human rights practitioners regarding how content moderation would affect their work. That's amazing. It seems like more legislatures should follow the House's example. Yes, and human rights practitioners are ready for these conversations. They've presented several models that may answer the question of what should happen to valuable censored content once it disappears. For instance, UC Berkeley's Human Rights Center mapped various models for building a digital locker of evidence that investigators may access. Thank you so much for this wonderful overview. Any last takeaways you'd like to share with our audience? Well, right now, because access to censored appropriative content is still voluntary, social media companies have a lot of discretion in deciding which content to share with investigators and whether to share content at all. This is another constraint on investigative work. It is incumbent upon social media companies to ground their data policies in the interests of human rights defenders and on judicial forums like the U.S. Supreme Court to interpret laws in a way that appropriately balances open access to information with the need to stop hate speech and misinformation. Thank you so much for being with us today, Mara. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Travaux is brought to you by Hiep Wen, Kyle Tang, Julia Wang, and the rest of the online team at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insight, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current. Please check out the Berkeley Journal of International Law's blog, Travaux. See you next week. Au revoir.